chapter 6, verse 1. Let's just dive in. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Chapter 6 opens, now in those days. Because the book of Acts covers a period of approximately 30 or so years, it's not uncommon that in our travels through this book, we'll run into passages very similar to this one. Passages that kind of seem as though Luke, our author, is kind of deliberately hitting fast forward on the VCR to speed up the narrative. 30 years, limited parchment, limited ability to say everything that's going on. So sometimes you get now in those days, which indicates that a lot of things were happening, the storylines moving forward. I can't tell you everything, but let me pull something out of this time period to make a point. And you should note, that as we get into chapter 6, in regards to your timeline, that about three years has transpired since Pentecost. So we're only six chapters in, but this early church has been around for three years. And I bring this up because when reading through the book of Acts, it's very easy to lose sight of the time frame behind the context and inadvertently mysticize some of the things that were actually taking place. Sometimes, because we lose sight of how long this period of time was, that we can somewhat read into things that aren't there. We can look at the passage and kind of glorify what's happening, and it was indeed awesome. This point, this section, you should understand, though the church, the birth of the church had been sudden, and its impact, incredible. The growth was immediate. My point is that this is three years in. The church itself needed time to mature. It was not immune from problems. Sometimes we look at the church in Acts and we think, wow, that's the perfect church. That's exactly how everything should always be. But keep in mind, you know, sometimes we over-glorify the apostles. Sure, they interned with Jesus. They had been equipped by the Holy Spirit. But pastoring this church, caring for the needs of this new community, it was not only a monumental undertaking, but keep in mind, they had never pastored a church before. Like, it's not as though that they're, they're experienced pastors. They interned with Jesus. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. But every experience they would face was new. They had no other seasoned pastors they could pick up the phone and get some advice on. They're total rookies at all of this. And not only that, not only was the leadership inexperienced, but it's not as though the church itself was filled with a bunch of seasoned Christians. You know, sometimes if you have a young pastor, you hope that the church has some more mature, solid, rooted-down Christians, you know, to kind of keep things from getting out of control. This church not only has inexperienced leadership, but every single person involved in this church, every single person of the 3,000 added on the day of Pentecost, they came out of the incubator, not fully grown Christians or fully mature, but babies. I mean, they're all babies. They needed time to mature. It would take time for them to grow in grace, to increase in knowledge, to learn what it really meant to be part of a community and to compound the difficulties associated 
with having inexperienced leadership and infant believers, keep in mind, the growth of the church never stopped. I mean, it only intensified. As we enter chapter six, Luke simply tells us the numbers of the disciples was multiplying. So initially he can say there was 120, 3,000 were added, another 5,000. He's putting some numerical value indicators on the growth. The last chapter we saw how he's saying it was just increasingly like it was, it was the growth was abundant. I can't even put a, a number on it. Now he's like, ah, whatever, it's just multiplying. Like addition, addition, addition. I can't keep count anymore. Now it's multiplication. Think about the scene, the atmosphere this way. What was God's remedy for a church full of spiritual toddlers being led by 12 preschoolers? I mean, that's the context of what we have here. His solution, add more babies. <laughs> what? That's nuts. You see, in context, should it really come as a surprise that with these conditions, a lot of spiritual toddlers being led by spiritual preschoolers, multiplying of babies, should it really be a surprise that a complaint arose? I mean, should this be that shocking as you're reading through the story to get to chapter six and see there's a problem? Of course there were problems. There were all kinds of problems. Young leadership, baby Christians, more being added. Problems were inevitable. I'm kind of surprised, actually, it took this long for Luke to kind of fill us in that this wasn't the perfect utopia. Now, before we discuss how the situation was ultimately handled, Let's begin by examining the particulars of the complaint. Look again at the verse. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because, so we have our reason, their widows, the Hellenists' widows, were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, at this point in church history, the church is made up entirely of Jews, ethnic Jews. They're all Jews the movement was started by Jesus, who was a Jew. The leadership, 12 apostles, they're all Jews. The church itself, these are, 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 are people converting from Judaism to Christianity, but they're all Jews. They all share the same heritage, the same culture. It's, it won't actually be until Acts chapter 10 that Gentiles are added to the mix. And in the process of this, you should note that, yes, the church is entirely Jewish at this juncture. Not all Jews were alike. As a matter of fact, in this context, in this story, we're presented with two different kinds of Jewish people. On one side, there were the Hebrews. These were Jews who had refused to assimilate into Roman society. They lived within the borders of Israel. You could see that these Hebrews were extremely nationalistic. They had pride in being Jewish. They were very traditional when it came to the law or, or to matters of culture. On the other side, there was another group known as the Hellenists. This group, ethnically Jewish, they retained certain important aspects of their heritage, but they had kind of broken from tradition and had embraced a Grecian lifestyle. They weren't so anti-Rome or Greece that they were like, forget the world, we're going to live in isolation here in Israel. 
They were businessmen. They a lot of times lived outside of the land of Israel. So on one aspect, you've got the traditionalists, and then on the other end, you have somewhat of the progressives. And understand that these two groups not only harbored great disdain for one another, but Judaism, Judaism had done nothing to remedy these lines of racial distinction and cultural demarcation. In some ways, Judaism actually fostered the divide, the animosity that existed between these two groups. And though in this instance, we see an issue arise between these competing factions, it should be pointed out that they were living in harmony in this new covenant Christian community. I mean, where, where Judaism couldn't bring these two groups together and instead gave them all the justifiable reasons to say, forget you, buddy, leave. Now in, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in this Christian community, these groups that didn't like each other are coexisting and cohabitating and loving one another. One might say that where the law had driven a wedge, grace had built a bridge. Now from the context, it's clear that the nature of the complaint centered on the care of these widows, which, before we get into the nitty-gritty here, the fact that the church had to care for any widows at all is a significant development because it seems to indicate, well, that there was a growing division now, not just between like Jews that were Hellenists or Jews that were Hebrews, but now between Jews that were, well, members of Judaism, and now Jews that are following Jesus, that there seems to be a shift, a growing shift between the religious Jews and the Jewish Christians. According to the law, if a widow, a Jewish widow, did not have a family to care for her needs, so she didn't have a son, her husband died, she had no one to take care of her, she would be cared for, according to the law, by the rest of society. In many instances, this would include a pass to glean first in the fields or, other, or some other type of national welfare initiative. Jewish widows were always cared for. If there wasn't a family member, society, the government, so to speak, took care of these, of these women. And yet, it would seem now that the Jewish authorities were refusing aid to the Hebrew widows who had converted to Christianity. Like, it's the only explanation for why the church is having to carry this responsibility in the first place. It was, in some ways, a form, a real form, a real form of religious persecution. Now, in the communal life of this first century church, the mechanism for the, the caring of the, the needs of these widows was through, according to this passage, what was called the daily distribution. Now, the specifics of how the daily distribution of resources, uh, how that took place, we're not told at all. We have no idea. But there is one thing crystal clear. The Hellenists believed that their widows were not being appropriately cared for while these Hebrew widows were receiving some kind of preferential treatment. Now, I know that that's kind of reading into the text a little bit, it's the whole context. In order for you to be kind of upset that your widows aren't being cared for, and thus now you have a complaint against the Hebrews, the idea is that their widows were somehow being slipped some goods that weren't being afforded to these other women. Like, there was this problem. 
Now, it should also be noted that Luke, in verse 1, the rest of the chapter, he provides nothing in the way that he frames this situation to dismiss the reality that these widows were actually being neglected. That's an important point. As a matter of fact, it'll be significant in how everything develops. Luke, and the way he contextualizes this, the Hellenists had a problem that their widows were being neglected, and he does nothing to let you know that it wasn't unfounded. And thus, subsequently, we can conclude that, indeed, these widows were actually being neglected. They had a real problem, a real beef. Now, though Luke will not dismiss the complaint, there is also nothing in the way that he frames uh, the context here to indicate that the neglect, though it existed, was intentional. Matter of fact, it was kind of unintentional. And this is where our story gets really interesting. It kind of takes a turn. According to Acts chapter 2, and again in Acts chapter 4, this daily distribution of resources was under the direct supervision of who? Of the apostles. This means it's the A-team, Peter, John, and James, the boys, who were neglecting these widows. And what's worse, they're totally oblivious to the reality. Now, one might assume that cognitive malicious wrongdoing among the brethren would be the principal destructive force of real church community. But history affirms that the nastiest, most contentious messes that end up in church life are often the byproduct of what I'll call unintentional wrongs. An unintentional wrong occurs when one person is legitimately being hurt. These widows are being neglected while the culprit is completely oblivious to any wrongdoing. Like, that's a very, very dangerous situation. One person is emotionally charged about what's taking place, and the other isn't, because they don't even see it. They don't even know about it. And so as this goes, and as it festers, it develops this idea of, you don't care for me, when in reality, I didn't know that I'm even hurting you. Like, if I had known, I might have done something, but I didn't know in everything I'm doing, you're still being offended by. And this goes back and forth, and it's circular, and this can be messy. This is the scene that Luke has set for us. Neglected widows, upset Hellenists, oblivious apostles. We have a potential scene for messiness, divisiveness, a bad deal. Now, in our travels through Acts, we have already seen Satan try to destroy this work that Jesus started through intimidation. Earlier chapters, we saw this. Then infiltration, and then persecution. All of his strategies at this point have backfired. In response to each, the church grew, the church flourished. It was the opposite result of what Satan had attended. And yet now, in Acts 6, Satan shifts to, I believe, the most dangerous and effective of all strategies, divide and conquer. You know, the one thing about intimidation or infiltration or persecution is that in some ways it actually fosters community. I mean, nothing will bring the church together than persecution. When we're all being persecuted, when we're suffering for Jesus' sake, we'll rally around one another. So Satan's trying to, to knock us out, but we huddle together. 
fosters more community. Intimidation, infiltration, the same way. But now Satan shifts. He's like, I can't do that anymore, so I will try to divide them so that I can conquer them. And this might go without saying, but the only condition that you need for the potential of human conflict is the presence of two people. (laughs) That's all you need. All you need for division is two people. All you need for an argument, two people. I can argue with myself. That's kind of that's kind of crazy. But all you need is two people. That's the only condition you need for a split to occur. This means that the problems with a church community are actually inevitable. It's inevitable because, well, the biggest problem to church community <laughs> is that there are people trying to exist in church community. You see, no matter how hard we might all strive to love one another, to abide in the grace of Jesus, to live in the harmony of the Spirit, it is simply a fact that no church, no church will be perfect, no church will be able to avoid conflict or problems. As a matter of fact, the church itself, we won't be in that atmosphere or that condition where people can actually really get along until we're in heaven. See, in heaven, we'll be fully unified. We won't have to deal with this mess. In heaven, we'll finally achieve the perfect church. Also, you'll finally have a perfect pastor. It's been said that if you find a perfect church, don't join because you'll mess it up. It's the truth. And let's be honest. If this first century, Holy Spirit-filled, apostolic-led church, literally founded by Jesus himself, in three years still faced real problems, like genuine neglect, then no church will be immune. You know, it's, it's interesting. Almost every epistle that's written throughout the rest of the New Testament centers itself on one idea, conflict and the church. Like almost every, every writing of all of the apostles, all centers on, hey, there's some problems here. There's some conflict. Let me tell you how to deal with it. Like we get in our mind that the first church was perfect. It wasn't. You have the apostles neglecting widows. And then on the flip side to it, we think, well, if we could just get back to the way it was in the beginning, just read first and second Corinthians. That church was crazy dysfunctional. And yet, Jesus still has a plan, and there's still a way we can deal with these things. You see, while Satan has many ways that he'll try to divide the brethren, I want to point out a single overarching idea that's presented in verse 1. Now, Satan will try to divide and conquer through like, through like real sinful neglect, real moral lapses, moral failures, things of that nature. Like Satan's strategies... The tools to divide and conquer are many. But in this passage, we're given this idea, and I think it's so important for us to understand, that Satan, like I think the singular most important tool in the toolbox when it comes to dividing and conquering is that Satan will always attempt to take a real problem, widows being neglected, to achieve a destructive result. This is not a misunderstanding This is an actual problem. And what is Satan going to try to do? To take a real problem. There's a real issue here, 
And he's going to try to use this to divide and conquer the church. You see, what made this dynamic so dangerous is that if any one party, the Hellenists, the Hebrews, the apostles, did not determine to handle this situation in a godly manner, a godly way, Satan would be able to gain a foothold to divide and to destroy what God was doing. And he would use a real harm. You see, history attests that more good churches have splintered and split when real issues become big problems because they're not handled in a godly and biblical way. Now, though next Sunday, we'll see how the apostles, the offending party, handled the complaint. This morning, I want to begin by looking at how the offended party, these Hellenists, how they handled themselves and handled this situation. First, their complaint was based upon a real concern. Please understand that right from the beginning. There was substance to their complaint. The problem at hand was inadequate care of widows. This was a huge issue. Their concern, their complaint, it's not a matter of personal style. It wasn't an issue of non-essential ministry methodology. Caring for these women, the Hebrew widows, the Hellenistic widows, caring for widows was a fundamental job of this church. And they were failing on the job. And this topic was of such importance that not only would Paul write extensively about it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but James, who's a part of what's happening right now in this text, he would stress again the seriousness of the issue when he would say that pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and what? And widows in their trouble. Now before we continue... I want to point out that there is a fundamental difference between a complaint and the act of complaining. These Hellenists were confronting a biblical issue, a genuine complaint. And yet, more often than not, complaints that arise in the church today do not fit the same basic biblical criteria and are therefore viewed a bit differently and handled differently. Now, don't misunderstand me, and I want to say this right up front. At Calvary 316, helpful suggestions or constructive criticism for how we can better our ministry are always welcomed and appreciated. I mean that. You know, it's impossible to get better if you're not honest with what can be improved. I haven't arrived. The church hasn't arrived. If we want to get better as a ministry to better reach people, Helpful suggestions, constructive criticism, that's often the way that we can look and examine real needs to deal with them. But here's the kicker. There's a fundamental difference between a person bringing before the church a complaint based upon a biblical concern or even a helpful suggestion, you know, a suggestion maybe aimed at ministry effectiveness and the individual who simply loves to complain. A complaint and the act of complaining, radically different. Now, there are many reasons that people feel compelled to complain. Sometimes it's misguided hurt. Other times it's maybe inappropriate expectations. In some instances, it can even be a mental disorder. But there does seem to be, from my experiences, one universal constant 
complainers complain. Like it's kind of who they are. It's kind of part of their DNA. You see, in my experiences, I've seen that complaining is often simply the compulsion of the complainer. These people are never irked by just one issue and are always complaining about something. Complainers tend to be recidivists. Please understand, the fundamental difference between complaining and a complaint had had to do with the issue, the matter at hand. You see, complaining is often never about the subject of the complaint. When your kids are complaining, it's never about whatever's in front of them. Like it's not that you didn't cook that broccoli the best way any mom could possibly cook broccoli. They're complaining because the actual issue is they, they want ice cream and candy and not to eat the broccoli. Like complaining, it's never about the issue at hand. It's always something deeper, a manifestation of a, a deeper ill, the byproduct of a more pressing problem, an action birthed from an inner attitude. You see, complaining... Complaining is one of the single greatest indicators of an ungrateful spirit. And that's the truth. Calvary 3.16, if you have a biblical complaint over something we're doing or a theology we're teaching, please bring it to our attention. I encourage you to. It could be that it's simply an oversight. It's an accident. One of those things we didn't even see what we were doing and we appreciate you bringing it to our attention. Other times it might be a growing pain. In others, you might bring up an issue that we need to get on our knees and repent over. And for that, we would say thank you. It's the only way we can grow. You see, none of us serve in a vacuum. We're not only accountable as leadership to you, but to God. And you know what? We all wanna mature and we wanna grow and our roles as leaders. But that said, at Calvary 316, we do see a big difference between a complaint and an attitude of complaining. And here, we will not tolerate complaining. I can't tell you how many church pastors that I've talked to who have just, like their biggest headache in ministry are people that complain. Like every Sunday, it's something. And in reality, the reason that they have this dynamic is because they've allowed it. They've tolerated it. They've given it in a year. And as a result, complainers, it's not about the complaint. It's about their compulsion to complain. So it will be always happening and never ending, which is why we just say no. Okay, a complaint, that's cool. Complaining, no. Let me give you three fundamental reasons why this is our policy here at the church. First, we take complaining very seriously because complaining destroys what God can do in a person's life. Like the reason that church leadership and hopefully we'll have a culture that if you're running your trap about something that you shouldn't be, that people will say no. You know why ultimately we'll do that? Because it's not good for you. Like it's not good for you. When Christians tolerate a complainer or a complaining spirit, we aren't bearing with one another. In actuality, we're enabling the sin of ungratefulness to exist, to foster, and to spread in the heart of that person. 
You see, when faced with these people, we need to understand that complaining is a serious condition, a spiritual condition that carries with it damaging results. It's been a recent study came out of Stanford that has actually shown that complaining physically damages a person's brain. Their study revealed that complaining for 30 minutes a day, <laughs> which for most of us is the, the, the drive home from work, right? That complaining for 30 minutes will directly damage the neurons and the part of your brain that's used for problem solving and cognitive functioning. It's why complainers are never solution-oriented people. They're actually destroying the part of their brain that would even enable them to do that. And if that doesn't sound damaging enough, the same study went on to show that complaining also zaps the energy and the functionality of the person listening to the complaining. So, so understand, complaining not only damages the brain of the person speaking the words, but it also physically damages the brain of the person listening to the words, which explains why after a meeting that's filled with nothing but constant complaining, everyone leaves that meeting really positive and upbeat, right? No, we're all just depressed. Like even if like you didn't have an issue, if the meeting is nothing but complaining, you feel it physically. We all understand that. It's depressing. You see, the truth is that lending an ear to a complainer, it really does more harm than good, both physically and also spiritually. <laughs> Consider for a moment the children of Israel, the, the generation of complainers, the exodus from Egypt to the land of promise. Think about how God handled them. Like, they're known for complaining, and they're known for their ungratefulness. Think about how drastically God handled that group of people before you complain. One scholar pointed out, God called the Israelites an evil congregation for their sinful ingratitude. To God, an ungrateful attitude is sin. It's evil, which provokes him to anger. Although God did not strike Israel with pestilence or disinherit them, he did cause them to wander the wilderness for 40 years until that demonstration, that attitude died. Their murmurings and unthankful attitude condemned them from ever seeing the promised land. We deal with complaining because it's not good for the complainer. And as pastors, as people who love you, like, we don't want to see those effects in your own life and ingratitude. That's not what God has for you. And as pastors, that's not what we can tolerate for your benefit. But secondly, complaining, it also destroys church community. To understand this point, you need to realize that the sin of complaining is really destructive to the life of the church for one reason. Do you realize that complaining is contagious? Like, it, no, I'm not kidding. It's actually a disease that you can catch. It can spread. The same study that Stanford did, they noted that in addition to the physical effects that constant exposure to complaining will have on the brain, their research also revealed that the more you allow yourself to be around a complainer, the more likely it is you'll end up mimicking the same behavior. 
If bad company corrupts good morals, then you can also say that the company of complainers will corrupt even the most positive of attitudes. Author Trevor Blake, he made this observation concerning the study. He said that the latest neuroscientific data shows that the, that the brain works more like a muscle than we've ever previously thought, so much so that you need to repeat a behavior in order to become the behavior. Repeating a behavior, the more you become the behavior. If you surround yourself with a bunch of complainers, he says it's more likely that you'll become a complainer yourself. It spreads. It's contagious, which is why it's so important for a church to have a culture that just doesn't capitulate to complaining. For church leaderships and attenders alike to deal with these kind of issues, not just for the benefit of the person, but for the benefit of the body, for the community. Nothing will slowly erode away unity and yield divisions more than complaining that is allowed to go untolerated, that spreads. We have to deal with these things. I read across one author, he said, procrastination, avoidance, or capitulation can be disastrous because complaining grows and spreads with time. Hoping that it'll just go away is like hoping a cancer will simply recede by itself. Untreated complainers are like untreated cancers. They will inevitably spread destructiveness. Now, I'm kind of saying this, by the way, not as a critique of Calvary 316 where we are, but more of a warning for us to avoid where we could go. Because I, I, Calvary 316, you guys are the most grateful, generous, awesome people that, that I've ever been around as far as church culture goes. There's not once that we have to deal with a complaining spirit. So this is not to rebuke anyone, but mainly to help us understand that it's very easy for us to go down this road Early on, we had an individual. I won't name him. I was not here. Andy was leading worship. And he came up after the Bible study and just let into Andy about the song selection, about how he was playing the piano, about this and about that. I heard about it. And I called him up and I told this individual, I said, what you just did will not be tolerated. This man is volunteering his time. He's serving Jesus. How dare you criticize the sound when you're deaf? It was true. It was kind of like, he left, doesn't attend here anymore. But we dealt with that early on. I had people complain about Folger's coffee. I'm like, dude, it's free. Like, it's free coffee. It's free. Shut up. Like I would tell people, like early on, it would be like, dude, you can bring whatever coffee you want to drink. Bring it on your own. I like French vanilla Dunkin' Donuts, so that's what I buy and bring. We need more decaf. No, we need as much help keeping people awake as possible in the midst of my Bible study. It's like you can bring it, like don't complain. Be solutions-oriented. Like, just early on, it was like just zero tolerance because it's not good for you, and it'll, it'll, it'll make our culture gross. 
Like, who wants to hang out with a bunch of complainers? Like, let's get together to encourage ourselves because we had a really hard week by complaining about everything else. Like, no thanks. That's not a part of the church community I want to be a part of. It's not good for people. It's not good for our church. But you know, complaining, like one of the the third reason we deal with it is that it robs the laborers of joy. I'm convinced that this singular attitude of ungratefulness has caused more good men and women to fall out of the ranks of ministry than maybe any other reason. If an encouraging word lifts a spirit, complaining cuts that spirit off at the knees. You see, when someone complains about something in the church, the type of events that we're offering for the men or the women or the youth, the worship song selections, the volume of the music, paint choices. I'm not pulling these out of the air. I've heard them all. When someone complains about one of these things, they don't realize that they're actually criticizing a person's service to Jesus. And how dare you? Like, I hope you understand that there's no greater killjoy for a person in ministry than when after pouring time and energy and creativity and heart and soul into a service for Jesus, that a person nonchalantly comes up and complains and is critical. See, before you complain about a ministry in the church, keep in mind, there's a person volunteering their time to plan and organize these events for your benefit. It's the truth. Before you complain about song selections or the sound quality of the Sunday service, keep in mind, there's a person volunteering their time to create an environment by which you can approach and exalt and worship your king. Before you complain about the color of the building, you weren't here to help paint the building or the aesthetics or the organization of the children's facilities. Before you complain about any of these things, keep in mind, once again, there is a person volunteering their time to develop the best environment for you and your family to come and encounter Jesus. And they're often doing so with like zero or to little budget. They're making do with what they got. So why complain? You see, before you complain about another person's service to Jesus, please consider, who gave you that right? Who made you the arbitrator of such things? What standing or authority or spiritual gift do you have to justify complaining and discouraging people who are trying to serve Jesus by doing good? If you think about it in that perspective, we're going to measure ourselves a lot more. Calvary 316, as the pastor, I'll speak for the elders because we've talked about these things before. We will not allow you to discourage anyone serving Jesus by tolerating ungratefulness. I ran across a powerful article titled 10 Things Pastors Hate to Admit Publicly. I've included a link to this, by the way, in the app. I don't agree with all of them, so don't think this is like a subtle way I'm going to communicate things to you people. Some of them I'm like, amen, 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 and then others I'm like, ah, nah, and I'll let you figure out which ones are what. (laughs) But number seven, number seven on the list, I'll share, it jumped out at me. 
Number seven was titled, We Spend More Time Discouraged Than Encouraged as Pastors. Let me read what he writes. He says, occasionally people say to me, must be awesome to get paid to study the Bible all day. Rightly or wrongly, I infer that they're actually saying, must be nice to have such a cush job as a paid quiet time. In all honesty, it is pretty awesome to be paid to study the Bible. But it's a major downer when people tell you, after two minutes of uninvestigated reflection, that your 30 hours of study and your two collegiate degrees were wrong. That they just couldn't stay awake today during your sermon, but no offense. And then he says, how about I just fall asleep at your kid's graduation? We'll call it even. He says, how you should have also said, like you hear that, someone says, ah, great, great sermon. But you know, you could have said, thanks. Or what's worse, Pastor so-and-so said, well, Pastor so-and-so's not here. I am. He, he continues, he says, aside from these particular examples, I find that, that most pastors, it generally feels like the boat is always taking on water more than racing with the wind, regardless of size or rate of growth. Lead pastors particularly suffer from this since much of their job is to focus on seeing things get better, which often translates into focusing on the broken or the lacking or the unfilled parts of the church more than enjoying what is right and working. Many of the most faithful and fruitful pastors in history have suffered deeply with anxiety and depression for the same reasons. You know, Charles Spurgeon suffered from deep, dark bouts of depression to the point his assistant would often have to push him onto stage to get him to, get him to preach. Pastors are notoriously very self-critical. Like we leave and we go home most of the time very discouraged because our job is to figure out how to make things better. I get into the car with my wife. And I'm like, Jess, how was, how was the Bible study this morning? Good. Oh, what? That's it? It was good, honey. Now, I found that, that good means good. <laughs> like if my wife's ever like, that was a great Bible study. Then I'm like, oh, that happens once in a blue moon. But we need encouragement and we desire feedback. We want to grow. We want to get better, but be careful because most of the time we spend our existence morally, more, more with discouragement than with encouragement. Now, and considering the way the, this offended party handled the situation, not only was their complaint based upon a real concern, but the way they handled their concern revealed their motivation was sincere. Luke is clear in light of this glaring need that a complaint arose. Sadly, this translation has yielded more confusion than clarity. Our English word complaint implies uh, not only that a grievance occurred in the way that something was handled, but an active and public expression also took place of one's displeasure. I felt this way. I expressed this to everyone. And if this translation is accurate, then Luke is presenting a situation whereby the Hellenists, who felt wrong, they took their complaint not to the apostles, but to the public arena. And yet this is not the case at all. The word complaint in the Greek I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I'm not Greek, but it's on the screen. 
this word, it affirms that a grievance and the way something was handled occurred. So it's the same way. I, I felt like I was wrong. But as opposed to taking it into the public arena, this word literally means a secret displeasure, not openly avowed. And next week, because we'll see that the apostles immediately begin to address their complaint in verse 2, Luke seems to be saying that these Hellenists, they took their issue directly to the apostles. They felt this way, they saw this, and they took it to the offending party. They didn't make it a public spectacle. And understand, the way that these Hellenists handled the issue revealed a good desire, a godly desire for reconciliation, a desire to maintain unity. They didn't want to create division. That's not their motivation. They didn't want to give the enemy a foothold. They just wanted the problem remedied. Though they were hurt, they understood that greater things were at stake. The gospel, unity, Jesus, and the kingdom. I hope you realize that Jesus is just as concerned with how the offended party handles themselves as he is with those who are committing the offense in the first place. Two wrongs don't make a right. Not to mention it eliminates the chance of healing and unity. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he refuses to hear, then tell it to the church. Interestingly, the church didn't exist at all at this point. Jesus is giving future advice. But if he refuses to hear even the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Paul would later say that this might be grounds to dispel the individual from the church community if your brother sins against you. I, I like that because Jesus, he knew what? That even brothers sin against brothers. That conflict would arise. That there is not and will not ever be a perfect church community on this earth. And Jesus knew that there would be times that we would hurt one another. That's why he addresses the topic in the first place. And don't miss how he tells the offended party to handle their grievance. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So that why, if he hears you, you have gained a brother. Keep it private. Then if that doesn't work, bring a witness. Then include the church. It's how Jesus told us to do it which is why this is the model that we'll handle. If you come to me to talk about so-and-so, I'll shut you down right then. Have you talked to them first? No. Go do that. And if you come back, so-and-so didn't hear me. Well, take a witness. Take someone else with you. That's what Jesus told us to do. I think he knows what he's talking about. And then at that point, if it's still not remedied, the church can get involved. You see, this was a dangerous moment for the church because if the Hellenists didn't handle it the right way, it would have given Satan a foothold to divide and conquer. And next Sunday, we'll look at how the apostles, the offenders, handled it. In conclusion, don't complain. <laughs> it's a good conclusion, right? Like, don't be a complainer. Like Complaining destroys what God can do in your life. It destroys church community. It robs the people serving Jesus of joy. You don't want to do that. We would all be wise to, to take Paul's words to heart in Philippians 2 when he says, do all things without 
complaining and disputing that you may be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. You see, Paul's making an interesting point. He's saying that, that the antithesis of complaining, unity, it communicates a message to the world that is totally foreign. It's shining a light. Don't complain. And if you're struggling with how to differentiate between a genuine complaint and having a complaining attitude or spirit, I would encourage you to consider just two important questions. First, how big is the issue? And secondly, this will help you evaluate how big the issue is. Is it an issue that you're prepared to leave the church over? It's a good way to evaluate things. If it's one of biblical morality, you have a responsibility to address it the right way. Don't air your grievance in public. Obey Jesus. Take the things he says to heart. Go to the offending party so that you can gain a brother and Christ can be glorified. But if the issue is one of ministry effectiveness, pray. Pray and ask the Lord to help you figure out a way where you can bring a suggestion before the church without being critical of someone else serving Jesus. Maybe seek to be part of the solution, not just always pointing out the problems. There's room for improvement. But changes rarely happen through discouragement. And finally, if the issue that irks you is simply a matter of personal preference, the music's too loud, they play too many hymns, the Bible study's too long or weighty, you don't like Dunkin' Donuts coffee, you know what? Maybe you should just let it go. Unless... If the type of coffee is a big enough issue to determine what church community you go to, like the coffee is the single reason that you're going to sit here and, and, and take the teaching of God's word and plug your kids in, like it all comes down to the coffee. Please bring this complaint to me because I have no problems encouraging you to attend the countless Folger churches that exist in our community. So Father, with that word, we want to let these things just sink into our hearts. Help us have a positive attitude. Help us be grateful.